Welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Your hosts, Marcy and Jenny, are talking and drinking their way through Newberry award-winning books, past and present. Hello, and welcome back to the Newberry Tart Podcast. I'm Jenny. And I'm Marcy. And this is the first episode of our fifth season. We are going to be discussing the 2003 books, and we are starting with Hoot by Carl Hyacin. Our drink for this episode is called the Night Owl Cocktail, which we found at gatherjournal.com. And we have a synopsis from uh, the Newberry and Caldecott Award Guide to the Medal and Honor Books put out by the American Library Association. Hyacinth's wildly funny satire features the new kid, Roy, joining forces with tough Beatrice and the elusive mullet fingers to defeat a bully, thwart an avaricious corporation, and save a colony of burrowing owls. Hyacinth's work is both a rollicking adventure and a serious examination of values that threaten our environment. So I completely agree with this review that it's it's a satire. It's really funny. It's a rolling, rollicking adventure. Um, who is a who? <laughs> one thing I wasn't prepared for, um, because I'm not sure if I've read any Carl Hyacin before this book. Well, this is actually his first book for kids. Like, obviously, he's better known for his grown-up fiction, although at this point, probably equally as well as the kids. But at that point that this book came out, this was his first book for kids, which okay. makes it even more incredible that it won an honor. Yeah. I just, I was surprised at how well-developed the characters are and how I, I thought it might be really slapsticky and kind of um, very surface mm -hmm. um, and just a little like wacky for wacky's sake. But I was super surprised by how funny it is and how engaging it is. And there is an environmental message and there's an, a, there's a message about kids being able to affect change in their community. Um, but it's really, really funny. I was surprised at how funny it was. It is really funny without being ridiculous. Like you said, like it, it has some wacky stuff in it, but I think that especially okay for me having grown up in Florida like this I felt so seen somehow but like a lot of the whole like truth is stranger than fiction stuff like some of the more bizarre things came off as true because of the setting which I thought was very clever but yeah I do like you were saying I do really appreciate the environmental message and I think that I feel like I'm just gonna be like praising this book and not saying anything critical because I really do enjoy it. But one of the things that I really like about him as an author and this book in particular is that a lot of authors have trouble bridging genres and he does not have that issue. Like he writes, you know, he, he still writes now as a newspaper writer. And so he's got that whole nonfiction thing happening. And then he writes these thrillers for grownups and he writes these adventure slash mystery slash suspense books for kids but he still has the common threads throughout all of them. So if you like any of them, like particularly the whole environmental message and the, the humor, you're going to like all of them, which is really great. And I, this is my very, the very beginning of my journey with Carl Hyacin books. So I have a pile to lend you. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So let's get into the story a little bit. It's about Roy, um, Eberhardt. Yeah, Roy Eberhardt, who is a new kid in town, and he's riding the bus. He op it opens the book with him riding the bus, and he looks out the window. Um, he's being brutalized by the school bully, mm -hmm. but while he looks out the window, he sees a boy about his age running barefoot down the sidewalk away from the bus. And the whole thing is set in uh, Coconut Grove, Florida. Is that a real place? I don't think so. I think it's made up, but it sounds very similar to – like I did a little just – 
Googling, and it sounds very similar to the city where he grew up. So that's right Coming by- to Emory. Yeah. And he wrote for the wheel. Oh my God. Yeah. I okay. feel so seen by this dude. <laughs> he has no idea. <sighs> okay. Well, no, that surprises me because I felt like I felt like if Coconut Grove was a real place, I just feel like there's a lot of tropical themed names for Florida in Florida. True. But it sounds it does sound very real. And mm -hmm. all like the way he describes a small town in South Florida feels very real also. But <clears throat> there were a lot of hellish creatures. This is true. This Which I've gathered from all of our podcasting now, interviewing <laughs> different people who've lived in Florida, you talking about Florida, the books set in Florida. It's like America's Australia. It is. And when you grow up there, you don't know it. You're just like, this is what life is like. It's horrifying. It's horrifying. <laughs> but kind of awesome once you're out. <laughs> you survived. As a kid, it was fantastic. You're like <sighs> alligators and fishing and blah, blah, blah. Sinkholes. And Sink but when you're a kid, sinkholes are awesome. Mm -hmm. We would go to this spring, right? And you could float down the spring. But if you were a kid, you knew where the little side sort of trails were. So you would kind of splash off to the side um, at certain points. And there was one place that we knew that did have, I guess technically it was a sinkhole, but we called it the quicksand hole. And you could stand in it. And I don't know what geologic term there is for it, but it was like quicksand, right? It was a spring that was coming up through sand that was so fine that you would sink, but there was a rock right in the middle of it. So you could stand on the rock. Oh, like you okay, would sink good. down. Well, that's the, good. But we thought it was the most awesome thing ever. That is awesome that there was a rock. I was like, you were just standing in quicksand for fun. <laughs> like that's what Florida does to you. Yes. That's horrifying. There were shark teeth too. Well, yeah. I mean, there's shark teeth, any kind of- It was a freshwater spring. There are freshwater sharks. Mm. They big shark teeth? <laughs> no. You almost never find really big shark teeth, though. Like, even at the beach. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what why that is. <laughs> I think they lose the baby teeth and then keep the big ones. I don't know. Well, they're just in the, inside their rotting corpses when they die. Like, they don't uh, loosen. I don't know. Like, did you see that thing in the news recently where they found a shark that was, like, some, like, insane, like, 400 years old or something? No. Was it still alive when they found it? Yeah, it's still alive now. Is it blind? It looked blind. I don't know. It looked really monkey. How did they age a I mean, how did they age a shark? I have no idea. I feel like at that age, it wouldn't be that hard to catch. But I'm saying, like, the teeth just stayed in the mouth. So, yeah. like, maybe the grown-up shark teeth are mostly swimming around. Yeah. Or they're so heavy, they can't be brought in by the tide. Like, they just yeah. sink, right? That makes sense. We should look that up and find scientific <laughs> backing, scientific facts. We're not a science podcast. I'm, a, I'm are a soft we? scientist. I'm, as a librarian, I'm a soft scientist. That's what I call myself. But uh, the mysteries of nature are always exciting to me, but I don't uh, know the reasoning behind them. I think the thing I was getting at was that it's set in, in Coconut Grove, Florida. But in the book, he is a recent transplant from Montana, which he misses very much. So he's homesick, he's new at school, and he's getting bullied when all of this starts. So Roy has seen this um, has seen this barefoot kid running, mm -hmm. and he is very curious about this kid. But he's being brutalized by Dana Matherson, who is the school bully. Mm -hmm. um, and he, when he tries to investigate, he's warned not to by the other like big scary person on the bus who happens to be. Does she play soccer or is it lacrosse? Who happens to be this soccer playing, very athletic very intimidating older girl on the bus named Beatrice. She's also known as Beatrice the Bear. Yes, but seems extremely popular also, which I think is even more intimidating for him. Mm -hmm. But so he remains super curious, and despite being warned off, he continues to try and find out more about the running boy. I mean, so he, he starts trying to figure out who the running boy is, but meanwhile there's another plot going on. 
of um, a pancake franchise that's going to build a new restaurant in town in a supposedly um, vacant lot that's been cleared by the city as being ready to build. Yeah, ready to build. There's supposedly there's permits and everything's all set. But but the site keeps getting vandalized. And it just so happens to be mentioned almost every time that there's a scene there that they see an owl swooping by or somebody trips on a burrow and it turns out that it's a, a burrowing owl variety that lives on that lot. And they're tiny little owls that are six to eight inches tall. And they sound so cute. And they sound adorable. Um, so this quick the story quickly turns into kids versus adults. It turns into finding out that the mystery kid is a kid who's a kind of a rogue environmentalist and who's known as, by the name Mullet Fingers. And Which sounds creepy, but it's because he can catch a little fish called a mullet in his bare hands. It's not because he has a mullet on his head or <laughs> he has mullets on his fingers, like wig, finger wigs. I don't know. I like at first I was like, because I didn't put it together that it was a fish. Like I always forget it's a fish because yeah. I always think of it. Oh, it's the hairstyle, you know, <laughs> um, which I still have lots of questions about the origin of it, but that's, that's a whole other topic. Um, he lives in a bus. Yeah. He, it turns out that he is Beatrice's uh, stepbrother who she's been looking out for, but he runs away multiple times and he runs away from boarding school as well. And he hates, he hates their parents. Who justifiably, because in the descriptions it comes it comes to light that the mom especially is really bad. The dad is actually not too bad. He's actually nice to him, but the mom gets in the way, which is funny because the mom is his like bio mom and the dad is his stepdad, but the dad is nicer. Mm -hmm. The mom really reminded me of um, Matilda's mom <gasps> in uh, Raul Dahl's Matilda. Yes. Yeah. But like you chose books and I chose looks. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yes, exactly. That's a very good yeah. that's a very good correlation. Yeah. But so this poor kid is hiding. He doesn't have any shoes at first until Roy gets him some. And it turns out that he is, of course, the mystery saboteur of the pancake house. And he's the only one that for a large part of the book and large part of the story has seen the owls and can say that the owls exist and, and even knows what's happening. And like other people notice the owls, but they don't understand like what's about to happen, that they're an endangered species. They're about to get raised or bulldozed over and that there are baby owls and nests that couldn't escape no matter what. It is interesting to me because like a lot of children's literature, most of the adults let down the kids and or are not worthy of the kids' trust. Um, Although Roy's parents, delightfully, are both alive <laughs> and very supportive, which yeah. I really like in a kid's book. And I felt like they had appropriate-sized reactions to what he was doing because they had no background for what he was doing. Mm -hmm. And he was doing some really erratic things for a, for a lot of the book. And then they finally... Came, came to understand what was happening. And then, you know, they were very supportive. But what's really interesting to me for this as a kid's book is that it's not uh, like a dysfunctional family driving the situation. It's not his parents' like irrational and outsized reactions. Like a lot of books use that as a plot point and you're like, no parents would like ever actually act like that because, I mean, maybe they would, but. Well, I think it has this book has both, right? Because you have Mullet Fingers and Beatrice's parents. Yeah, and you that's have, true. Um, you have Roy's parents. Just like you have the officer and you have Curly. 
Yes. Um, so it's constantly pitting two different types of adults against each other. That's true. Curly is the foreman of the uh, of the building site, and there's a police officer who's very interested in trying to solve the trying to solve the mystery of who is doing all the sabotages, sort of to advance his career and and make him look good at the police department. And they keep butting heads. But I guess my whole point about his family is that a lot of times in kids' books, it the parents serve as an external force that drives the plot rather than the kids' decisions. Mm-hmm. Like the kids are reacting to what's happening, but they're not like deciding things and making active choices, which he is in this book. He he like weighs his options. He actually stops and thinks about it, and he's not just you know, running away because the house burned down and I don't know what else to do or I'm trying to think of a good example and I can't, but I just feel like in so many books that kids are put in impossible situations where they don't have really a choice one way or the other. They feel like they have to do one thing, even if it's desperate. Whereas in this book, he's got this supportive family that understands and they encourage him to stop and think and talk to them. And he does, which is great, but he's also weighing what's right in his heart versus in his head. And it's, it's just nice to see that thought process happening. I feel like it's a, even though he's doing vandalism and he's doing all these things that are objectively kind of crazy, he's doing them for good reasons and he's doing them thoughtfully. So Mm -hmm. it's, it seems like a good role model for the kids reading the book. Well, he's also not the one instigating the really dangerous ones. I think that if he had been like the person with the snakes, that's all mullet fingers. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Let's talk about what mullet fingers does to vandalize. Okay. So the first thing that we find out is, I think it's just like a broken fence, right? I think the first thing is they're pulling up the stakes, the grading stakes at the site. So someone has been going in and pulling up the stakes that mark the site before they've done any bulldozing or clearing or anything. And not only taking them out of the ground, but filling in the hole so you can't just stick them right back in. And that happens multiple times. And that's sort of the beginning of the vandalism. And Officer Delinko, the officer we were talking about that wants to solve the mystery, he goes and he's he's going to stay up all night and patrol, like watch and everything. He falls asleep and someone uh, spray paints <laughs> his windows black. So when he does kind of come to, he thinks it's nighttime and then there's nothing happening. And he just is made to look completely stupid and threatened with being fired. And that fuels his resolve to really solve the mystery no matter what. And it all kind of goes downhill from there for him, really. <laughs> it does. He redeems himself, though, because he does end up helping the, the kids with their crusade. He does. Um, but it gets even crazier. Like, they build a fence and they bring in crazy attack dogs. and uh, To deter the vandal. Yeah, and Mullet Fingers catches poisonous snakes, tapes their mouths closed, and releases them on the site so that they'll scare the dogs but not hurt them. Mm-hmm. And then there's the alligators. Oh my god! And the porta potties. He put alligators in the porta potties at the building site, <laughs> which I know that a lot of this sounds crazy, but I was reading an, an interview that Carl Hyacin gave, and he said that um, he had to check the statute of limitations before he went into specifics, but that he he ganked a lot of these incidents from his own childhood and i totally believe it because when we were kids well when you're a kid and you have access to alligators what can't you do and it's so easy to catch them it is so easy to catch them what yeah you're talking about smaller ones right you can catch whatever you try to catch 
What do you mean you catch one? You catch one, you lose your arms and your body, right? Well, okay, if you can get your hands around its mouth, like around the snout of it, mm-hmm. like they're, the vertical force they can exert is not that much. Like they can bite a thing, but they have trouble like opening their mouths against it. You caught one? Yes. Okay, <laughs> you, you need to talk a little bit about that. Okay, so in my neighborhood when we were little, there was this retention pond, which in retrospect is not the best place for kids to play, but... You could Not take in Florida. No, mm-mm. You, but uh, I have so many stories. <laughs> but, <laughs> but you could take a fishing pole, right, and put any piece of anything on it and throw it in there and catch an alligator. So, what I mean by you can catch them as big as you want is whatever you aim for, you will probably get. And if it's too big, you cut the line and run. <laughs> can you outrun it though? You zigzag. What do you mean you zigzag? They they can only run in a straight line. They have to stop and turn. Have you seen them do this? Oh yeah. I cannot tell you how many close calls with alligators I have had. They can also jump. So like What? They can jump. Which is horrifying. Like, What's just up vertically, or like vertically very or high. Like out. Alarmingly high vertically. So How are they doing that? I don't know, but I remember one time I was on a hike with some friends on a boardwalk that was like raised above the ground. It was probably a good four feet above the ground and then there was a railing above that and I was just leaning on the railing and I had a big elephant ear leaf in my hand and I was just sort of waving it back and forth just because I was waving it and this alligator walked up and very slowly it was just like walking really slowly toward me like the way a cat would and then all of a sudden at the last minute just leaped and I swear he almost got me and he had to have jumped at least six feet Marcy (laughs) I mean, maybe when we get into more like Appalachia mountain stories, I can match some of this. There you go. But and again, this I'm all just seemed glad com- you survived. This seemed completely normal. I'm glad you survived, Marcy. <laughs> Why? Thank you. <laughs> but now I know if I see an alligator, that I just need to run in a zigzag. Yes, and if it's little enough, just hold its mouth closed. Oh God, I'm not touching an alligator. <laughs> I'm not touching an alligator. I mean, like, there's maybe two circumstances under which I would try to grab its mouth, both related to my child. But all I'm saying is that it would be very, very feasible to put alligators in a porta potty. Okay. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of things to be frightened of in a porta potty. I now I'm worried about an alligator snatching my butt. Well, because they can jump. Well, they wouldn't even need to jump. They would just stand on the mountain of poo, poo <laughs> well, waste, and then they could just snap my buns. Theoretically, those I think would have been empty porta potties because they were still on a truck before mm-hmm. the the building started. So. Well, then they could be pretty sizable alligators then. Yeah, that's true. Oh. <laughs> <sighs> anyway, good times. Mullet Fingers is very busy with all of this, and when he is discovered by Roy and with Beatrice sort of vouching for him by this time, he gets them to help him with the sabotages and once Roy sees the owls he completely understands and that's another thing that I actually really love about this book is that everyone who sees the owls or hears about the owls totally gets it Mm -hmm. like Roy sees them and he's like oh yeah obviously like we have to save them and he talks about it to his class later Mm -hmm. and the entire class is like what they're doing what they're going to do what to the owls nobody is laughing at him they're just like yes of course we have even the bully even the bully and even the teacher yeah. The only person who isn't is Carly. Carly is the very, very bad guy of this book. Yeah. He he is the foreman of the site. 
and uh, he is determined to get this construction going no matter what because he's got a lot of pressure coming from above. What's the guy's name? There's a VP at the at the mm-hmm. upper up part of the company that is really threatening him. Chuck E. Muckle. Chuck E. Muckle. <laughs> he is the vice president of the Mother Paula Pancake Company. And the woman who plays Mother Paula is um, is really funny. Yeah. And she plays, so she's an actress, like kind of a B-level actress. She's playing the sort of grandmotherly baking figure who's the, the mascot of the whole company. And part of the deal is that they are going to have a groundbreaking uh, celebration where she comes to present. But she turns out to be actually really awesome. Like she's a younger woman who looks great, but then has what they describe as a sandpaper voice. And I swear, like he picked the best line ever for explaining what her voice is. And I cannot do accents at all. But when she says that, I got a tinkle. Yeah. Lead the way, hot babe. I can just hear it. I could hear it. (laughs) Um, And you kind of get a bad impression of her from that and the way she's sort of led through the whole like situation. But then after everything goes down and I won't tell you everything that happens, so we don't spoil it if you're going to read it, but she comes over and joins their side. And it turns out she's like a card carrying member of the Audubon society. And she's totally on the side of the owls. And that leads to her career rejuvenation, which is fantastic, Mm -hmm. which I thought was a really fun touch. Yeah. And that's, that's what I mean. I think earlier I said that all the characters are really well fleshed out and that's what I mean. Like she's on, she's got maybe, I mean, maybe 10 lines in the whole book. At most. But you get, you find out where she's been, what she's about, and where she's going to go. Yeah. And you you find that out about pretty much every character. And um, there's just a lot of thought that goes into each character that I super appreciate. I really liked this book. I think we both uh, have been gushing about this book, and I think that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, for Rita Likes, I would say um, the 1975 Newbery winner, M.C. Higgins the Great oh. by Virginia Hamilton. Um, it is about um, about coal mining and um, a young boy, M.C. Higgins, his, his awakening as an environmentalist. Um, and, of course, it's Virginia Hamilton, so it's touching and funny and smart and all those wonderful things. And then one of my favorite books, it's called Seed Folks and it's by Paul Fleischman. And who's uh, also amazing. Yeah. And, um, and it's about a community garden in a, in a city. Um, so, um, the, each chapter is a different perspective about the community bringing the community coming together to build a, a garden where there wasn't anything before. Um, and so it's got environmental, um, environmental mes- messages it's got community, you know, the building of community, and it's just a really touching, really, uh, really great read. It's not very long, um, so I would I would highly recommend both of those. Cool. Um, my recommendations would, if you like this, obviously any of the rest of Carl Heisen's books, the rest of his books for kids are Flush, Scat, Chomp, Squirm, and Skink, No Surrender. Um, but his grown-up books are actually really enjoyable, too, in the same vein. So if you like the kid books and you're a grown-up, try the grown-up books. Um, my others would be Evolution of Calpurnia Tate by Jacqueline Kelly, which was a 2010 Newbery Honor. Um, that is about a girl uh, kind of at the turn of the century, the last <laughs> the last turn of the century, um, who lives in Texas with a family of brothers and her grandfather, who's sort of uh, – they keep at a distance somehow just because – 
their kids and they're running around in a pack. But um, he's actually a naturalist, a very accomplished naturalist, and she becomes one also, even though she's a younger girl, which was sort of unheard of. But it's really good and has a lot of that same hands-on feeling that this book has. And then Okay for Now by Gary Schmidt, which uh, is not a Newbery book, but in every way should have been. <laughs> it's my top you got robbed book for the Newberries, honestly. Um, but that one has the same tone to me as this one, just like the same writing style. Um, and then it also is about a kid who discovers an entire new side of himself through uh, the artwork of Audubon at the local library, but has like the same, like the supportive librarian as opposed to the supportive teacher in this book. And then like an interesting like family dynamic. So um, I think that would really be enjoyable for most people. So let's talk about the night owl cocktail. <laughs> it's a beautiful color. It is a beautiful color. I can see by your face that it is not your style. So this book centers on pancakes. I feel like this is an evil, horrible version of syrup. <laughs> this is like if syrup burned and hated you. But you think all alcohol is like that. No, not <laughs> all alcohol. There have been many drinks that I've really liked. Like I liked the salty raccoon. I liked the... That's um, true. We tend to like the opposite drinks, I've noticed. Yeah, we do. We have different mouths. Well, because this makes sense for different people. <laughs> We got two mouths. <laughs> we got opposite mouth. <laughs> I'm trying to find the recipe again so I can it's, tell you what's in it. It's just, it's got that like, like the back end, like aftertaste is sweet and does taste a little, kind of a little, a little bit maple-y and a little bit like sweet and inviting. But when you first put it in your mouth, it kind of burns and tastes like floor polish. <laughs> okay. Well, it's made mostly of aged rum. It's got a teaspoon of dark rum, um, some sweet vermouth, and Ancho Reyes chili liqueur, which I think is really interesting. I like it, but I tend to like uh, cocktails that are bitter and um, I guess the word I'm looking for is botanical. Terrible. <laughs> <laughs> got a little, little bit of that. The Ancho Reyes stuff I did not expect to like because it's actually made out of peppers, and I hate peppers. And, and I love peppers, and I think that's what I'm catching on the back end. Yeah, well, I like how it's complex, and it's uh, it's also got a little bit of uh, orange peel in there, and just the combination. Maybe it's just because I'm a dummy for citrus. See, see, being from Florida has messed me up. Anything citrus no, in a thing. citrus. This time of year, I smell like oranges most of the time because I'm just like eating orange after orange after orange. But uh, yeah, I mean, I just feel like this is like maple syrup's dark mustachioed cousin. <laughs> well, it, it has no mixers in it. Um, so it is just straight alcohol, but I, I really enjoy it. I, I don't. I mean, I wouldn't chug it or anything. <laughs> but, you know, I'm glad I tasted it. I'm yeah. glad I've had a night owl now. There I would go. say that it uh, does seem a lot uh, more serious than the book tone. Yeah. It doesn't seem super well suited to the book. It seems something that, like like something that Chucky Muckle or and or Curly would be drinking while they're, they're upset about the dastardly kids. I feel like this drink is what Kimberly Lou Dixon goes back and drinks in her trailer. 
Thanks for joining us today. We were talking about 2003 Newbery Honor Book Hoot by Carl Hyacin. Please rate and review us on whichever platform that you are listening. It helps other people find the podcast and helps us keep the podcast going. Thank you so much. Production assistance for Newberry Tart is provided by Raphael Siebenman and Liam Grove. Graphic design by Liz Mytinger. Intro and outro by Ariana Hargrave. Theme music for this podcast is provided by the laid-back and local Throckmorton Ukulele Band. You can hear more of their music on Facebook. Find more Newberry Tart episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our website is Newberry Tart. That's N-E-W-B-E-R-Y-T-A-R-T dot com.